Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 6th of March 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Jesus, the Davidic Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Things turning out very differently to the way we expected. That is part of life, isn't it? When we look back on our lives, particularly if we're above a certain age, we will remember back to having certain assumptions, certain plans about how things were going to work out in our lives, only for things to normally turn out very differently. Sometimes for worse, sometimes for better, often a really weird mixture of the two. And where does God fit in with this? Well, that's where the old joke comes in. How do you make God laugh? Answer, tell him your plans. And if that's true for us, then it was true in spades for the Jewish people. And particularly true for their assumptions about what the fulfillment of God's promises to King David would look like. Over the last couple of months, we've looked at the story of King David under the title of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we've seen how David's story was a real mixture of things that were good, things that were bad, and things that were downright terrible. And as we did this, as we looked at the story of David, we reflected on how God was working, sometimes deeply mysteriously, through all of this stuff. Not just the good stuff, but working mysteriously through the bad and even the dreadful stuff as well, because that's what God can do. He can work amazingly through everything. But the significance of King David doesn't end with his death. And that's because of the amazing promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. You see, the previous king of Israel, you'll remember Saul, had been rejected when he disobeyed God. He was God's anointed king, he disobeyed God, and he was rejected as king. He had his kingdom torn away from him. But it was then different with David. As God made David these unconditional promises that no matter what happened, his dynasty would be eternal. That David would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And when we looked at the life of David in some detail that we did over the last couple of months, we saw more than enough to see how crucial it was that the grace of God was present because of the amount that was bad, indeed deeply ugly, within David's life. But after the time of David, a great deal of that mystery was forgotten. The David that the people of Israel remembered, particularly once their nation had gone into decline, was the David who had defeated Goliath. The David who had conquered Jerusalem. The David who had made it the place of God's presence. The David associated with many of the Psalms and supremely, the David to whom God had made those amazing promises which seemed to guarantee Israel's future. That's why we get the book of Chronicles. Chronicles is a rewrite of the book of Samuel and Kings, with pretty much all of the bad stuff about David missing. That whole episode with David, Bathsheba, and Uriah the Hittite, that's left out of Chronicles as is the link between the bad stuff David did and all the bad stuff that happened in Israel's history. Now, Chronicles wasn't, in my opinion, written to replace 
the books of Samuel and Kings, otherwise they wouldn't have been preserved side by side. But it's written to supplement them. It's written to supplement those other accounts which tell it as it was, warts and all. They're supplemented with this idealised portrait of David. Why? Well, in order to point the way forward, to point to the future and the fulfilment of those promises that God had made to David. That's why we get this rather idealised depiction. It's not to be dishonest, it's not to try and do a whitewash of David, it's to try and point to what God was going to do through those promises to him. We see very something very similar in the prophets. These rather strange figures that pop up in Israel's history, generally they come to show God's people what they're doing wrong and how God's judgment will come on them as a result. But particularly once those disasters occurred, the prophets spoke messages of hope, which often focused on the fulfilment of God's promises to David. And here is one of the most famous ones. When we come along to Christchurch at Christmas, to Carols by Candlelight, very often this is the first reading. For unto us, the old versions say, a child is born, to us a son is given. He will reign on David's throne, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. That promise that God gave to David being fulfilled. And as time goes on, this becomes the basis of Israel's hope. Israel hopes for a Messiah to come and rescue them. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word, and its translation in Greek is Christ, and its translation in English is anointed one. David was anointed, wasn't he? The prophet Samuel took some oil, put it on him to show God's special appointment of him. And in future times, when God's people were being horribly oppressed by a series of huge superpowers, and they were nothing more than a tiny minority, the people of Israel cherished this hope that God would send this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, to fulfill his promises to David and rescue them. A great big superpower oppressing smaller states. That resonates with us at this time, doesn't it? Well, the Jewish hopes for a Messiah were really focused on two very specific things. There were two very specific things that Jews expected the Messiah, the Christ, to do. First, they expected the Messiah to bring a great victory over their pagan oppressors, something a bit like David's victory over Goliath. And secondly, the Messiah was expected to re-establish God's presence, probably by rebuilding or at least restoring the temple. And it's amazing how many would-be messiahs, both before and after Jesus, sought to present themselves as fulfilling these promises. So a couple of hundred years before Jesus came, there was Judas Maccabeus. He won a great victory over the pagan Greeks, and then he entered Jerusalem on a war horse, and he cleansed the temple from what the pagans had done to it. And after Jesus, there were other would-be messiahs. There was Simon Bar-Giora, there was Simon bar Kokhva, And they tried to do much the same this time against the Romans. Win a great victory and establish God's presence or re-establish it. And even bad King Herod from the Christmas story, he tried to present himself in this way as well. Herod spent a fortune restoring the temple in Jerusalem, building it up, making it huge and magnificent. Why did Herod do that? To stake a claim to being God's Messiah 
the anointed King of Israel, the one through whom God would fulfill those long-awaited promises to David. So what about Jesus? In the light of all of that history and all of that stuff from the Old Testament, what about Jesus? Well, this series deliberately follows on from the last one. We've deliberately made the artwork that Nathan does for us replicate it as well, because this series is called Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. How does it fit with all of that stuff that came before? Well, the New Testament writers are absolutely insistent that it does fit. That's why the New Testament starts off with that long passage that I read earlier, with all of those difficult names. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the very first verse, not just of Matthew's Gospel, but the whole of the New Testament. And both that verse and the names that follow are a major statement about Jesus being the Messiah from David's line. Incidentally, that was something that Herod and all those other would-be messiahs, including Judas Maccabeus, could never claim because they weren't from David's family. That's why Herod was so scared when those wise men came from the east looking for the one born king of the Jews. That was the bit that scared Herod. He wasn't born king of the Jews. That's why it was important for Jesus to be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. It was all reinforcing the fact that he, and not the frauds, was the Davidic Messiah. But to go back to where we started this morning, Jesus turned out to be the son of David in a way that was totally different from what people expected. Totally different from people's assumptions for at least three reasons. And the first of them was this. Jesus, as the Davidic Messiah, came to bring a different sort of victory. You see, the victory that people were expecting from their Davidic Messiah was the fairly straightforward defeat of their enemies, the fairly, uh, fairly straightforward beating up of the baddies. But what we've seen in the story of David over the last couple of months is that life isn't as simple as goodies versus baddies, is it? We often like it to be. We often try and read history and contemporary events as though they are essentially about goodies versus baddies. But that's certainly not the biblical perspective. Part of what Jesus came to reveal and to make clear was that the real victory that was needed was over the powers of evil that run through every single one of us. And that's why Jesus' exorcisms are so important. I was saying to someone after the 9.30 service earlier that a lot of people think all the difficulties and problems for Christians lie in the Old Testament. But actually, we don't get exorcisms in the Old Testament. We just get them in the ministry of Jesus, by and large. These episodes where evil spirits are driven out, and often people can find that rather disturbing and off-putting. But it's really, really important, because Jesus came to clarify that the victory that was needed was not over the Romans or any particular group that was seen as embodying evil more than other people. It was over evil itself. That's why the exorcisms of Jesus are so crucial. And because Jesus came to defeat evil, the character of that victory needed to be very different as well. Because if evil is just located within certain groups, you can defeat it by fighting against them. But if evil runs through all of us, a very different solution is needed. 
You see, most Jews expected the victory that the Davidic Messiah to bring to look something like this, a military victory, the baddies being beaten up and destroyed and the evil that they encapsulated therefore being removed. But Jesus was far more realistic than that. Jesus knew that evil is far deeper and more profound than just being located within particular people and not within others. And that's why the solution that came with Jesus had to be very different. That's why the character of the victory that Jesus won didn't look like that. It looked instead like this. The Bible passages that describe the crucifixion of Jesus, they're full of irony. Because most people watching on that Friday 2,000 years ago thought it was a huge joke that the supposed Messiah, the supposed King of Israel, was being crucified. To most of them, that was the proof that he couldn't be Israel's Messiah if that was happening to him. That's why they hung that notice above his head. You can't quite see it in that picture. But they hung a notice above his head saying in three languages, the King of the Jews. But they meant it as a joke, didn't they? They didn't mean that it was true. It couldn't be if he was being crucified. But the gospel writers are presenting that supreme act of sacrificial love at that point as the victory that God had always promised through the Davidic Messiah, but coming in a way that no one ever expected it to come. Being accomplished at a much deeper level than ever anyone imagined was needed. Jesus came to bring a different sort of victory. Secondly, Jesus came to establish a different sort of temple. King David had played the crucial role, a crucial role in establishing the site for the temple, the place of God's presence. Although when David himself tried to build it, God wouldn't let him. And God said that he himself would be establishing a house for David. That meant a dynasty, but it also meant the location of God's presence. People, as we saw earlier, expected the Messiah to rebuild or at least restore the temple as the place of God's presence. But what they got in Jesus was sort of the same thing and sort of something much deeper. What they got in Jesus was someone who brought God's presence in his own person. Jesus was a walking temple. He was the place where people encountered God's presence. That's why we get things like Jesus' healings and his other miracles. Because where Jesus was located, the presence of God was located and amazing things then happened. Jesus came to, bring the, to, bring, to be the temple in person, to be God's presence in human form. Firstly, in himself and after his ascension and after Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, within the people that belong to him. That's why both Jesus and the church are described in the Bible as God's temple, the place of God's presence. And that links to a third way in which Jesus defied expectations, which was by establishing a different sort of people. See, one of the many shocking aspects of the story of David, at least I hope we were shocked by it, was the way in which he treated non-Israelites. Supremely, of course, Uriah the Hittite. Very significant that Uriah is not Uriah the Israelite, he's Uriah the Hittite. He was a Gentile follower of God, and David, therefore, treated him appallingly. He had sex with his wife, Bathsheba, and then, when that was going to be discovered, 
David had Uriah callously murdered. He didn't matter, really, because he wasn't a Jew. By the time of Jesus, no one expected the Jewish Messiah to be really interested in anyone other than Jews, and then pretty pure ones as well. And Jesus turns that expectation, that assumption, totally on its head, doesn't he? Jesus comes precisely for those who are on the margins and outside the boundaries of those who were acceptable, tax collectors, prostitutes, and also people from outside Israel itself. We'll be looking at some examples of that over the next couple of weeks. When Jesus died on that first Good Friday at the hands of the Gentiles, showing nothing but love in return, the blood guilt in the Davidic line that had uh, existed since David's treatment of Uriah excuse me, was finally atoned for. And the immediate result was something very, very significant. Because Jesus dies on that Good Friday, and several things happen. There's an earthquake, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, showing that uh, people were no longer separated from God, but also this happens, and it's very significant. A Roman centurion a pagan Gentile centurion, probably the man who was in charge of the execution of this supposed king of Israel, this supposed Messiah, he suddenly declares, truly, this man was the Son of God. He makes this startling, miraculous confession. When David's kingdom began to suffer all of those rebellions and started to really fall apart, one of the things that the rebels said was we have no share in David. Perhaps they were right. David was partial. He favoured some and not others. And by the time of Jesus, most people assumed that when the Messiah came, he would just come for some. But pretty much the biggest overthrow of expectations that came with Jesus was that he came for everyone. That anyone and everyone could now share in the Messiah, the son of David. We have no share in David, people had said, back in 2 Samuel chapter 20, but everyone can share in the son of David, the Messiah. And that's why in that genealogy that I read earlier, the names of the Gentile women are so important. Most genealogies were just full of names of men, one after another, but you get those very significant Gentile women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and supremely, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. They're at the start of that genealogy in Matthew's Gospel to show Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, but coming in a way that no one had ever expected. And I guess there's a more general and a more specific challenge coming out of all of this for us this morning. The general challenge for us all at the start of this period of Lent is whether we're prepared to have our expectations, our assumptions, overthrown by Jesus. Or if we've been a Christian for a while, whether we're still prepared to have our expectations and assumptions overthrown by Jesus. The reason why Jesus ended up being crucified was because God's people weren't prepared to accept the challenge to their assumptions that he was making. But being a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is all about being prepared to continue having our assumptions challenged by him. That's part of what should be happening 
as we come to church week by week to worship God. And when we listen to sermons, sometimes we'll hear something that hits us straight between the eyes and make us, makes us totally change our thinking. But most of the time it's more subtle than that, and it's meant to be. As we just continually are shaped by hearing God's word read and preached week after week. But it's still a good challenge for Christians to ask ourselves, when was the last time that the Bible, that God's word, changed our mind about something? and then changed our actions. If that's not been for a while, then Lent is a good opportunity to start putting that right. To ask God to freshly open our heart. At the start of this sermon, I prayed that prayer, which I remember hearing as a kid, where the preacher would say, open your word to our hearts, and our heart to your word. We need to pray that prayer regularly ourselves. Because being a Christian is all about being prepared to constantly have our assumptions, our expectations overturned. As I said at the start, how do we make God laugh? We tell him our plans. We need to be listening to God's plans. That's the more general challenge this morning. But the more specific one is whether we're prepared to believe and act on that truth about the different kind of victory that Jesus came to bring. And this is a particularly appropriate message as we consider how to respond to events in Ukraine. Particularly in a nuclear age, we're acutely aware that we need to find ways of defeating evil other than through force, don't we? Now, that doesn't mean that in a fallen world, force and restraint aren't sometimes needed. Sometimes they are, I believe, appropriate. Because of Jesus, though, our principal weapon in the fight against evil has to be sacrificial love and that's where the appeal that we heard at the start of this service from Helen Cook comes in and why our response to it is so appropriate sacrificial love and also the humility that recognizes that the evil that this love needs to overthrow is something that actually runs through every single one of us rather than just being located for instance in Vladimir Putin many of us feel powerless at this time and of course, the major decisions are in the hands of politicians. But particularly because of the victory over evil and the presence of God within us that Jesus brought, we can all do two things. Firstly, we can pray to God, knowing that because Jesus brought his presence, he hears us. And we can also all show sacrificial and inclusive love. Love for Ukrainians, love for Russians, love for everyone different from us. And by so doing, we'll be presenting the powerful, transforming gospel truth that Jesus came for everyone. And that we really do believe in the power of God's sacrificial love in Jesus, the son of David. To bring in a manner that continues to challenge every assumption and expectation that people have the amazing victory over evil that he always promised. People said at the time of King David, we have no share in David, but that is never true of the son of David. Live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, live in a relationship with Jesus the Messiah, and his transforming love can work in our lives. And it can be part of further implementing that assumption-destroying, expectation-destroying victory over evil that God always promised to bring 
through the Son of David. Amen.